I'd like to welcome everyone uh, here this evening. Um, my name is Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I'm the head of uh, the International Relations Department and the director of the U.S. Center here. Uh, and the U.S. Center is sponsoring uh, tonight's lecture. Um, so every now and then, you get to introduce uh, a great scholar, a terrific speaker, and a dear friend you get to hit the trifecta, and that's tonight. Um, tonight's one of those nights. Professor Charles Kupchan is all of those things and more, and it really is a, a pleasure for me to be able to, to chair tonight's lecture. Charlie is Professor of International Affairs um, uh, in the School of Foreign Service in the Government Department uh, at Georgetown uh, and a Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I know a lot of you know his work, uh, his written work. He's written, um, the author of nine books, including um, most recently, No One's World, The West, The Rising Rest, and The Coming Global Turn. Um, shortly before that, How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and The End of the American Era. U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century. Um, many of us in the IR community know Charlie for his first-rate scholarship, but another thing that really separates him from, from the pack um, is that he's also very engaged in the policymaking world. For the past three years, he served as Barack Obama's Special Assistant and the Senior Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council. And during the Clinton years, he was also the Director of European Affairs uh, on the National Security Council, and before that, a member of the policy um, planning staff at the U.S. at the State Department. Um, a few other facts about um, Charlie before we get down to business. Uh, he received his B.A. from Harvard, his M.Phil and D.Phil from uh, Oxford, He's held visiting appointments at Harvard Center for International Affairs, now the Weatherhead Institute, um, to the Institute of um, International Policy Studies in Tokyo, and he's also been a um, held a visiting appointment here at the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in London. Um, former Henry A. Kissinger Scholar at the Library of Congress. He's also held appointments at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and the Transatlantic Academy in Washington, D.C. In short, it's hard to think of anybody who is better equipped to take on tonight's topic, from Obama to Trump, what next for U.S. foreign policy. Um, for those of you who are hoping to, um, to connect with Mr. Trump tonight, the suggested hashtag is... LSC Cupchan. Um, we did tell you that the president follows the LSC on Twitter. Um, uh, Can I go yeah, so you you may not get back in. Um, uh, as usual, uh, after after the lecture, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, There'll be a chance for you to put questions to uh, Charlie, and I'll do my level best to get as many questions in as, as possible. If you haven't turned your phone to silent or switched it off, please do so now. And um, without further ado, please join me in giving Charlie Cupchan a warm LSE welcome.
Thank you very much, Peter, for the, uh, for the warm welcome. I uh, am delighted to have the chance to catch up with you and other friends that uh, reside here in London, uh, and uh, delighted to have the opportunity to spend around 90 minutes with, uh, with all of you tonight. If you uh, were to ask this world that we live in today, the sort of globalized world, the rules-based international order predicated upon principles of democracy, of liberalism, of free trade. If you were to ask where did that come from, who's responsible for that, I think you would say that there are two countries that did most of the work to get us here. And those two countries are the United Kingdom and the United States. And I'm not here to sing the praises of the Anglosphere and to assume that Anglo-Saxon peoples are the only ones capable of building international order. That's obviously not true. But I think it's fair to say that first the UK and then the US, working with different partners around the world, were the primary drivers of the brand of modernity in which uh, we participate or live today. In the first instance, the UK, I guess I'd probably pick 1815 as the beginning of, of, of Pax Britannica, colonized most of the world, responsible for globalization, if that means global flows of trade and finance. That lasted until about World War I. Then there was an interregnum in which nobody was minding the store and all hell broke loose. Then the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and Roosevelt finally had a sufficient domestic consensus to enter World War II and Pax Americana was born. And so roughly from 1815 until today, we have been living in a world in which either the people of this country or the people of the country that I'm from have been the drivers of modernity. Well, what has happened in the last six to eight months is that those two countries, the United Kingdom and the United States, have just said, we've had enough of this. And here in the United Kingdom, a referendum was held in favor of exiting the European Union. The European Union is in some ways the most advanced rules-based system that we have out there. And the UK is not withdrawing from international politics, far from it, but its people have spoken that they're not so sure that this system that they and the US built together works for them anymore. They want out. In November of the same year, the US held a vote and the American people selected Donald Trump, a candidate who ran on a platform trying to answer the disgruntlement of those people who were saying, guess what, this system doesn't work for us anymore. Those people who said, we are the, the losers, we are on the losing end of globalization, we want out. And so between the, exit, the Brexit vote and the American election, we are now entering a historical period that is unprecedented. 
because it appears that neither the United Kingdom nor the United States is going to be the main architect, defender, supporter of this system that we have collectively built over the last 200 years. Is Merkel up to the task? I don't think so. Is Abe up to the task? I don't think so. So who's going to do it? That's the issue that I want to delve into tonight. And I want to, first of all, talk a little bit about the setting, what's going on in the world today that makes this issue as important as I think it is. Secondly, I want to talk a little bit about how we got here. Why is this happening? Why is it that the two countries at the leading edge of history are now saying, hmm, we're not so so sure we want to be at the leading edge anymore. In fact, we're not so sure we even want to play this game anymore. And then I want to end with some reflections on Trump, where he may be heading, and what you, as citizens of the United Kingdom and other countries, many of which are long-standing allies of the United States, can do to help push Washington in a positive direction. Because the Trump administration is very much a work in progress. Lord knows they need somebody to come and, and, and show them how to run a government. Right? They are barely able to make it through the day. And what that means is that they are open for people trying to to give them help. And Trump may listen to your prime minister more than anyone else because to some extent he feels a certain affinity with her uh, uh, for, for no other reason than that both the UK and the US are in some ways experiencing this issue. If it were just Trump or just Brexit, then I would say, you know what, this is just a little bit of indigestion. This is a detour. This is a blip. The problem is that it's systemic. It's happened here. It's happened in the United States. People now think that the next president of France could be Marine Le Pen. We came within a whisker's distance of having a president of Austria who represented a far-right party, i.e., this is not something that we can dismiss as an accident or as trivial. So let me begin by just giving you a quick assessment of where we are in global politics. And it ain't pretty. First of all, as I've been discussing, we in Western liberal democracies are facing an internal revolt, an internal questioning, a loss in trust in our institutions and our leaders of a sort that is unprecedented since World War II. And as a consequence, we have to ask ourselves whether this surge in populism that we are seeing in just about every Western country is going to 
lead us into a situation in which a democratically-led, rules-based international order is no longer viable because it no longer has the support of the majority of our publics. I'm not saying we're there, but if we are there, then the era that opened up with Pearl Harbor, or arguably, I think, the era that opened up with the end of the Napoleonic Wars, that era is going to come to an end in 2017. I don't know what's going to come next, but everything that has come before, I think, is going to be an anachronism. While we are trying to figure out what's happening to us, we have a Middle East that is in flames. To the degree that we have a few countries that we are looking to to help provide a modicum of stability, they are Turkey. (coughs) Yeah, Turkey. (laughs) Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Good news, huh? Uh, And I think it's safe to say that the dysfunction, the violence, the instability that we are witnessing in the broad swath of territory running from North Africa all the way to Iran and Afghanistan, that instability is going to be with us for generations. And that's because whether you blame George W. Bush or you just blame history or you blame random events, we have opened Pandora's box. And there are social and sectarian and religious and ethnic conflicts that are boiling in that region, and they are going to be boiling for a very long time. And my own guess is that by the time those fires go out, the region is going to look very different. Many of the states that exist today are not going to exist in their present form. And that's because most of the states in the region are not really nation states as we know them. Turkey is, Egypt is, which is probably one of the reasons that they still exist as unitary states. Most of the other states were cobbled together by, yes, Brits as they were leaving, and Frenchmen and others who just took out a map and started drawing lines that didn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Well, those lines are coming back to haunt Syria and Iraq and many other countries in the region, including Turkey, which has a huge Kurdish population in its southeast, and Turkey is effectively at war with its Kurdish population which then creates a fault line running into northern Iraq and northern Syria because there are lots of Kurds living on the southern side of the Turkish border. North Korea just used a nerve agent to assassinate the half-brother of the president and yesterday launched four missiles and is in the process of trying to weaponize those missiles with a nuclear warhead. Russia. Russia is arguably more dangerous today than at any time in, one could even say, the 20th century. Because they still have the nuclear weapons, but they've become much more (coughs) bold in not just projecting power into their near abroad. They're in Crimea, they're in the Donbass, 
they're in Transnistria, they're in South Ossetia, they're in Abkhazia, and they're probably not going anywhere. But now they're in our homes. They are penetrating our servers. They are interfering in our electoral processes. They love the fact that the UK is getting out of the EU. They're funding Marine Le Pen because they want France to get out. Why? Because they want to see the Western world collapse. That, in my mind, is a much greater threat to us than the presence of Russian troops in Donbass or anywhere else in their near abroad. Because if they succeed in undermining our societies and bringing to power populists, we're in a heap of trouble. China, in some ways, a bit bigger problem than Russia, as long as you pan out to, let's say, 2025 or 2030 rather than 2018. And that's because, in the end of the day, Russia is a declining power. Its best days are behind it. China is on the upward trajectory, best exemplified by the fact that they are now building military bases very, very far into the South China Sea. And then we've got all the other things to worry about, new forms of cyber war, climate change, which even with the Paris Agreement, we may not be able to reverse, and national security implications of rising oceans, of deforestation. In other words, we've got a lot of things to worry about on that front as well. That is not to say that there are not sources of stability or reasons to be somewhat optimistic that we are not going back to the 19th century. The world is today more interdependent than ever before. Globalization does create a disciplining effect because almost everybody out there wants to play in the markets and attract capital. There is no real great power rivalry yet. Yes, there's jockeying going on between Russia and the NATO allies, but it is quite limited. NATO has just decided to put a few thousand troops in Poland, and we're putting a small number of combat-ready soldiers in the three Baltic states. But this is not the rearmament, the remilitarization of the border between NATO and Russia. We're still in a, in a place in which the concept of armed rivalry between NATO and Russia is off the table. That's good news. At least for now, the prospect of great power war is off the table. That's good news. We still live in a world in which there is a very strong Atlantic connection, I was struck, having just served in the White House, by the degree to which American foreign policy is still, 25 years after the end of the Cold War, strikingly Eurocentric. And that's more by default than by choice, because I think President Obama came into office wanting to be a post-Atlanticist. He wanted to go out and forge partnerships with Indonesia and Turkey and Brazil and India But the problem is, when you call those countries and you say, are you ready to help us fight ISIL, 
are you ready to help us fight Ebola? How many peacekeepers are you going to send here? They hang up the phone. And so in the end of the day, when there's a problem that needs to be solved, Washington still calls Brussels and London and Berlin and Paris because they stay on the phone. They don't necessarily give you everything that you might want, but they do their best. And so in the end of the day, the main providers of public goods in the international system are still the Atlantic democracies. And we need to do whatever we can to get emerging powers to be better contributors on that front. So those are residual sources of stability. They are going up against sources of instability on a scale that we have not seen since World War II. And the thing that I'm most worried about, and this is where I started, is not China or Russia or what's happening in the Middle East. It is our internal political disruption and dysfunction and the degree to which that dysfunction and disruption may make us unable to rationally, deliberately, and in a smart way address those threats. As Peter and I wrote about in an article, what was that, almost 10 years ago? 2007. 2007, called Dead Center, the, help me out there, what was it? What was the subtitle? The decline of liberal internet. Yeah, something like that. We we sort of look back at American foreign policy, and when when there was a solid, centrist, bipartisan coalition, the U.S. generally got it right. Because whether you're a Republican president or a Democratic president, you turn over, you look over your shoulder, and there was a bipartisan, centrist coalition there saying, politics stops at the water's edge, Let's go do what we need to do. Now, if you stand in the middle of the political spectrum in the United States and you turn over your shoulder, you see no one. There's nobody there because the Democrats are over there and the Republicans are over there and the center has collapsed. Here in Europe, the center is still in good shape. In fact, strangely enough, In the U.S., our political parties, which were close to each other in the Cold War, have gone like this since the end of the Cold War. Here, the opposite happened. Labor and conservative during the Cold War were miles apart. After the Cold War, mainstream center-right and mainstream center-left have actually merged. There isn't that much difference in general between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. Right now, that gap is opening up again because you have a somewhat strange leader of the, of the Labor Party. <laughs> right? But in general, center-left and center-right have congregated in the center, but they have exposed the left and the right flanks to populist parties. So the, 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 there isn't a, a congruence between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Europe. But nonetheless, the result is the same. We've hollowed out the center and the populists are in rising in power. You've populated the center, but you've exposed the left and right flanks to the populists. And what worries me about that political situation is that I don't see the answers to our problems 
being addressed on either side of the Atlantic. I am going to come to Trump and his political agenda and why I think it will fail in a second. But before I do that, let me just say a few things about Brexit and why I am very perplexed by Brexit and why I hope I leave this room tonight with a better sense of what the hell's going on here. Because when I look at Brexit and the claims that the Brexiteers are making, they don't make any sense to me. First, if I were a businessman, and I'm not, and I have trouble counting and balancing my checkbook, so I'm not the greatest authority on this, but if I were a businessman and I were located in Britain, I would get the hell out of here tonight. Why? Because there's a single market on the other side of the Atlantic that is big. And if you guys are leaving that single market and you will not have unfettered access to it, why would I stay here? I wouldn't. And so I don't see how you can get through this exit without seeing a major exodus of jobs because companies are going to move where they will have access to that single market. I'm hoping I'm wrong and that somebody will tell me why I'm wrong in the Q&A. So let's come back to that. Two, the UK is going to go out and make all of these trade deals and you're going to be free trading with everybody. Well, why would you get a better free trade deal alone than when you, good, you would with the EU when you represent only about 18% of the EU GDP? your bargaining leverage is about to disappear. So I don't get that either. Third, global Britain. Keep hearing that from the May camp. What, what the hell is that? <laughs> I mean, you've got 3% of global GDP. Your military is shrinking. And so I don't know what that means. Does that... Uh, it's, it's this country all by itself is going to go global and bend the arc of history? Right? The only way a country that is 3% of global GDP is going to change the world and bend the arc of history is by doing it with others. Because we now live in a world of major economies of scale. So I have a hard time understanding why this is not a recipe for making Britain irrelevant. Finally, and in some ways this is what bothers me the most, the opportunity costs. You guys are going to spend the next two, three, four, five years trying to figure out how to extract yourselves from the European Union. In the meantime, ISIL is going to be doing this, China is going to be doing that, Russia is going to be eating our lunch and broadcasting Russia Today and Sputnik. And we have some real business to take care of. But I fear that you guys are going to be missing in action because you need to spend all of your time and energy figuring out how to get out of this union. Why? What's the point? Is it that important? Those are my questions, and I hope they're going to get answered when we... Uh, move to the conversation. So, let me now turn to Trump. What, uh, 
What I think has happened is that, as I was saying, our Republican Party and our Democratic Party depopulated the center really beginning in the early 1990s. Uh, I would probably identify the 94 congressional election as the switching point. Would you agree with me, Mr. American Politics? <laughs> that's it. That's, that's kind of when this, this ball of wax started to melt. And the, 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 good, the good news about what happened after that is that even though Republicans and Democrats differed about the, the means of, of foreign policy, they stayed together on the ends. So that the Republicans became the party of hard power. George W. Bush liked to invade countries. The Democrats became the party of soft power. President Obama was an engager. Diplomacy tried to stay out of wars in the Middle East. But George W. Bush and Barack Obama were aiming at the same thing. They remained committed to a rules-based international system, even though they disagreed about how to get there. What has happened with the advent of Donald Trump is that there has been a revolution in the Republican Party such that the Republicans and the Democrats no longer agree on the same ends not to mention the same means. And on the big fundamental defining principles that the United States has worked to defend, the Trump administration has become either hostile or uninterested. Free trade. Well, apparently we're about to see the implementation of a border adjustment tax. liberal democracy and standing up for democratic values. As far as I can tell, that's not going to be the case much anymore. Working through multilateral institutions. Not so sure that's going to happen anymore. Why is this happening? It's happening because there is a significant portion of the American electorate that has said, whether correctly or not, that those principles don't work for us, that we are on the losing end of this system, and as a consequence, we want to change. And they are focusing on three main grievances. One is the economy, and it is true that they have been suffering high levels of unemployment and stagnant wages for a very long time, roughly three decades, as jobs in the main manufacturing sections of the country have been disappearing and those that are available pay less. Secondly, immigration. There are many Americans who are uncomfortable with the degree to which the United States is becoming less Christian and less white. And three, there is a cultural component to this. It's partly the culture wars that one often hears about over abortion, over gay marriage, over liberalism versus conservatism, but it's also in some ways a clash of of civilizations or cultures with kind of middle America, the guys on Harley Davidson's who go to NASCAR races 
feeling very uncomfortable with people like Peter Trubowitz, who is educated, cosmopolitan. Wow. <laughs> so it's Peter who's responsible for Donald Trump. But, but there is this, this kind of sense that the country has kind of moved into two camps, the haves and the have-nots, and the haves disrespect the have-nots. And they're mad, and they're going to get even. And Donald Trump is the guy who is going to get even for them. And that's why Donald Trump is going after the establishment, at least rhetorically despite the fact that his cabinet has most of the richest people in the United States. <laughs> so the bottom line is that support for liberal internationalism was steady across the political spectrum because if you peeled back our elected elites, the different sections of society bought into it because they benefited. Whether you worked at Goldman Sachs or GM or in a coal mine, in the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, you thought this system worked for you because it did. Because if you looked at wages and opportunities and education, people were going up. Well, what has happened beginning in the 80s and then picking up speed in the 1990s is one group started accelerating into the benefits camp and another group started slowing down and falling into the I'm losing camp. And as a consequence, the fundamental social and political roots of support for liberal internationalism has cracked. And the country is deeply divided all the way down to the local level over this issue. So that's, that's how we got Trump. Let me now say a few things about the Trump presidency, and then I'll begin to wrap up with some thoughts about what you and we and everybody else should do about uh, the predicament in which we find ourselves. Let me begin by doing something that you probably don't expect me to do, which is to say some good things about the Donald. First, he is calling attention to something that we desperately need to fix but don't know how. And that is the standard of living and economic prospects of lower educated workers. We know that they are hurting. We know that inequality in our societies is rising. We know that if you have a college degree, you're probably going to be okay, and if you don't, you're probably not going to be okay. And the bottom line is, we do not know what an average American or an average Brit or an average Italian is going to do in the year 2025 to earn a living wage. We do not know. And what Donald Trump has shown us is that we need to answer that question, and we need to answer that question fast. Otherwise, we are going to be living in democratic societies that are dysfunctional for a long time to come. It is, I think, the defining question of our day. What are we going to do to make sure that they are earning a living wage? I don't know the answer to that question. No one knows the answer to that question. 
It's probably some combination of education, vocational training, tax policy, fiscal policy, investment in infrastructure, adjustments to trade. I don't know the answer, but we have to have a conversation about this issue. And I would also put immigration in there. In some ways, it's a bigger problem here in Europe than it is in my country, but it is equally important to have a conversation about this issue and to get it right because immigration is part of what is fueling this revolt in our democratic electorates. Trump is waking us up to the problem that we need policies to fix these issues. We cannot sweep them under the carpet. A second issue where I think he is barking up the right tree, getting allies to spend more on defense. Obama harped on this. He got NATO allies to commit to spend 2% of GDP on defense by, I think it's 2024. You guys make the grade and have long made the grade as a reliable, capable ally, but you're the exception. I think the NATO average is about 1.18%. And the big countries like Germany and Italy and Spain and Canada, they're the ones that need to do more. I applaud Estonia for getting to 2%, but when Estonia goes to 2%, it doesn't really buy that much capability because it's a little country. We need Germany to lead the way. We need Spain, Italy, Canada to step up to the plate. I'm not so comfortable with, with Trump saying, if you don't spend more on defense, I'm not going to defend you. That doesn't strike me as the most tactful way to approach the issue. But yes, I think he needs, he's right to be pushing on this. Third, I think he's right that there are countries out there that are taking advantage of the United States on trade issues. Germany is a country that needs to boost demand. It needs a stimulus. Merkel should get her foot off the brake. And if, we're the, if that were to happen, most of her European allies would be happy because they have been living under enormous restrictions and austerity, which is part of the reason that there has been this populist wave. But it would also boost German demand, it would increase German imports, and it would lead to a more balanced trading relationship with the United States and other partners. I don't think the way to get there is to slap protectionist tariffs. I do think the way to get there is to have a conversation with Germany, a bilateral and maybe multilateral conversation with this, because there is a problem. And Trump is right to point to it. Finally, I think that he is on to something when he wants to pull back America's overseas commitment. Obama was, in some ways, the first president to break the mold. He embraced a policy of retrenchment. He desperately tried to get out of the Middle East, but the Middle East wouldn't let go of him. And he eventually had to go back into Iraq and now Syria because of ISIL. But he did it kicking and screaming because he felt that the United States, over the course of the Bush years, had bitten off more than it could chew. And he wanted to get out of the box 
in which a version of American exceptionalism meant that the United States had to solve every problem out here. What Trump is doing is picking up that tradition, that urge to retrench. What we don't know is whether he might actually go too far and become not a retrencher, but an isolationist. And that's simply an issue that we're going to have to watch as it unfolds in the coming months. Now, those are my nice comments about Donald Trump. Let me say uh, a few things about what gives me heartache. First, as I said, I worry deeply that he wants to not just back away from the rules-based international system that we've built, but to pull it down. to dismantle it. He calls his approach to foreign policy America first. I don't really think it is America first. I think it's America only. I think every president since World War II has been America first, which is your first obligation is to your citizens. But in pursuing the interests of your citizens, you have a long-term view you do not see the world as zero-sum. And therefore, it's a win-win situation when your allies do well. I don't think Trump sees the world in those terms. He's a businessman. If company A is selling widgets, company B is not. And I think he's going to go out there and say, if America is winning and America is getting jobs and America is prospering, that's all I care about. That's a very dangerous approach to global politics. That's zero sum. That's dismantling a world in which we invest in the welfare of our friends and our partners because in the end of the day, that's investing in our own security. And if he embraces an America-only policy, he will succeed in dismantling the rules-based order because what will happen is we will get into a ping-pong game in which other countries start to defect. Other countries start to impose protectionist tariffs. Other countries say, you know what? I'm not going to abide by the rules of the WTO anymore. If the biggest kid on the block does that, you can bet that others are going to follow suit. A second issue, I I am uh, no fan of regime change. In fact, I would say that the invasion of Iraq, the toppling of Muammar Gaddafi, the effort to turn Afghanistan into Ohio have been some of the biggest mistakes that we have made as a nation. So I'm not someone who thinks that we should go out there and start toppling others. On the other hand, to sing the praises of Putin, when someone asks the question about Putin killing his opponents and the President of the United States says, oh, we do the same thing here. He creates a moral equivalency and denigrates who we are and what we stand for in a way that, in my mind, is very problematic. And maybe that's the way he feels, but it is truly worrisome if the leader of the free world doesn't believe in freedom, doesn't believe in a free press, doesn't believe in abiding by fundamental humanitarian and civil principles. And at this point, we just don't know. 
On the question of protectionism, as I said, I'm sympathetic with his concern that there are certain aspects of the current arrangement that disadvantage the United States. I'm also sympathetic to the argument that globalization has led to the loss of manufacturing jobs and has made life more difficult for many working Americans. I think he overdoes it, he exaggerates it. When you look at the economics literature and you say how many jobs have been lost due to export moving, jobs moving abroad versus automation, most economists will tell you it's around 90 versus 10%. 90% is automation, 10% is because the jobs move. And one important fact to keep in mind, America's manufacturing output today is as high as it's ever been. But they're being... The goods are being made by robots and not by human beings, which tells you that the the core of the problem here is automation. It is not that companies have left the United States. Automation is a much harder problem to solve than offshoring, and protectionist policies will not get us there. And in the end of the day, I think Trump will be able to preserve an air conditioning plant in Indiana and he will keep open another production line for Fords or Chevys in Michigan. But there is no going back to the 1950s. There is no going back to an American economy in which growth is powered by the manufacturing sector and union workers who are making $25 an hour building cars or air conditioners or vacuum cleaners. That's not happening. And that's because the world has changed too much. Production lines have moved. And so in the end of the day, I worry that he's going to slap a 20% tariff on imports. And what's the main result going to be? The flat screen TVs and stoves that working Americans buy at Target and Walmart are going to cost 20% more. But they will not get their jobs back. And they will not get wages that keep up with the, the price the increasing price of goods. In other words, it's not going to solve the problem. And at the same time, it risks tit-for-tat strategies and the unraveling of a global free trade order. Final thing that worries me, and this is probably the thing that, that worries me most because on protectionism and on some of these other things, we can have a, a reasoned discourse, and I hope we do, starting in about five minutes, about whether his policies make sense. But we can't have that reasoned discourse if we have moved from being fact-based societies to fiction-based societies. We can't make it through the day as democratic societies if in the morning we wake up and we read tweets from the President of the United States that are not based in reality. We cannot function as a democratic society when the President of the United States looks out at an inauguration in which there are major chunks of the mall that are empty and says, this is the largest inaugural crowd in history. (laughs) We can't function as a democratic society when all American intelligence agencies assess with high confidence that Russia interfered in our elections and the President of the United States says, I don't believe you. 
It doesn't work. And in a world in which our information has proliferated and in which information is no longer curated professionally by newspaper editors and TV editors and radio editors, but it's just out there for anybody, that kind of fast and loose playing with facts is enormously, enormously dangerous. We have seen countries become fiction-based societies before. We have seen them make myths, and that story does not end well. The other issue that I think is related to this is simply discipline, getting a policy process that is aimed at getting good outcomes rather than disrupting. Take this travel ban that was renewed today but was put out very early on. They didn't do their homework. (coughs) Under the Obama administration, we spent hours and hours and hours sitting in the sit room pouring over how to vet immigrants and refugees. It takes two years, multiple rounds of background checks and fingerprints and biometric data and intelligence assessments. And and they just pop off and and issue an order saying people from these seven countries can't come because they haven't been appropriately vetted. How do they know they haven't been appropriately vetted when they didn't talk to anyone? They didn't ask Justice Department. They didn't ask Homeland Security. They didn't ask the State Department because all the people in those agencies said nobody ever called us. They heard about the, the ban on entry from these seven countries when they heard it on CNN. You can't run a government that way. That says to me that this is a government that isn't asking what's the problem and how are we going to fix it. They are making policy to disrupt, to turn the system upside down. Can't, can't function that way. They need to figure out how to mine the store and to stand up a serious policy process. Let me conclude with five quick pieces of advice or hope or whatever the right word is for what you as, as close allies of the United States and other engaged citizens can do to help right the ship. First, as I said, I think that Prime Minister May and the UK in general will have more influence on Trump than just about anyone else which might not be a lot, but at least it's, it's something. Uh, and in this respect, I would hope that Brits and your leadership will speak truth to power, despite what's happening here when it comes to Brexit. And that even though you are getting out of the European Union, you are still a country that's committed to free trade, that's committed to a rules-based international system, that's committed to standing up to totalitarians. He needs to hear that. He needs to be pushed in the right direction. Secondly, when the vote for Brexit was announced, we met in the Situation Room pretty quickly. And one of the issues that we discussed, because we're Americans and we're America first policymakers, was what's the EU going to be like without the UK. 
how are we going to compensate for the loss of the British voice in the European Union? And that's a voice that was as close to an American voice as you will get on enlargement, on free trade, on readiness to use force and project power. And we don't have an answer. There isn't an answer. We can try to work with the Nordics and to work with Poland and see if we can't get Spain into the mix. But the bottom line is we will miss you desperately as a member of the EU. And so my request is stay engaged however you can. Maybe it's through the defense, European defense initiative. The EU seems to be moving on that. Maybe it's through some other opt-in. But the EU needs you, and we need you influencing the EU. Third, don't let Trump go wobbly on Russia. Putin is dangerous. Russia is dangerous. I don't know what's going on between him and Putin and the contacts of his campaign with the Russians. There's probably more news to come out. But whatever it is, we need to stand up to Russia. We need to keep the sanctions on until he gets the hell out of Donbass. Hold Washington's feet to the fire. Fourth, let's have that conversation that I mentioned a few minutes ago about jobs and immigration. As I said, we have to have that conversation because it's eating away at the fabric of our societies. Let's get that right. Final point, and I'll end on an upbeat note. I don't think that the Trump revolution is going to last. And that's because if you look at demographics in the United States, his voter base represents a declining cross-section of American society, which is precisely why they're pissed off. <laughs> because they're declining. Because the country's getting younger and less white and less Christian, and they don't like that. But the bottom line is that the country, because of immigration, because of generational change, will probably swing back to one that I'm more comfortable with and that many of you may be more comfortable with. So let's just be patient and wait for that pendulum to swing back. But in the meantime, we have to do everything that we can to push the Trump administration in the right direction. Thank you. Charlie, your microphone is switched to the mute. Could I ask you? To what was it that I said? <laughs> it's it's fun. into this microphone. So, uh, so that's great. Um, I have a question for you, but I'm looking at the clock, and I realize we don't have time for the questions. So good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm going to start to take questions. Maybe I'll get right in later. But there's a hand in the back there. I'll take the gentleman all the way in the back first, and then this woman down here on the left. So a yellow star. We're going to take a few questions at each side uh, at a go. How about the woman who's got her hand up there? Go to her. 
these, these, these positive things are headed in the right direction. I wish that they would head further. Uh, but I, but it, I cannot say the same thing about Bosnia and Republic of Serbia in particular, which is headed in the wrong direction. And I also am worried about Macedonia because uh, the basically the political mess that the country has been in and the lack of progress in in meaningful uh, integration between the majority Slavic uh, population and the ethnic Albanian. So the, the, I, I think we, we demote the importance of the attention that we give to the region uh, at, at our peril. Uh, I think it would be a, a big mistake uh, to not welcome President Trump here. Uh, he's the president. And you might not like him, but he's the president. Uh, and so I think it behooves everyone to try to work with him, reason with him, and push him in the right direction. To, to somehow you know, break off conversation with the United States, I think would be a, uh, a fundamental mistake. Immigration, yes, it gets it gets weaponized and it gets manipulated, but it is also a a huge problem. Uh, it, you know, I'm more familiar with the situation in the United States than I am here, but you know, in the, in the United States. We do, we do need to find a system of effective management. Because it, more or less we have a, an uncontrolled situation. Uh, now whether that means working simultaneously to better monitor the border at the same time that we find ways to legalize illegal immigrants, you know, that's one option. But no, no president has been able to get immigration reform through Congress and that's why the system itself desperately needs to be fixed. Uh, I think that immigration is a, is a more painful and polarizing issue here in Europe, partly because uh, Europeans aren't immigrant, uh, immigrant nations in the same way that the United States is. There is, in my mind, even in a country like the UK or France that has a civic definition of citizenship, ethnicity sneaks in. Uh, and as a consequence, European countries have a much more difficult time integrating minorities into the social mainstream than, than in the United States. And that, I think, is, a, is an urgent priority. The other thing I would say about Europe is you need to take border control seriously. Uh, we worked very closely with Merkel and others on stopping the flow from Turkey to Greece because it was our assessment that if 2016 looked like 2015, it would be game over. Germany could not withstand another million plus refugees coming in. And so at some point, you just have to make tough decisions. You have to do things that may make you morally uncomfortable. And that's because if you don't do that and you don't tighten the borders and you don't, in some cases, create refugee returns, 
our societies become, they get, they get to the breaking point. Uh, and so I, that's why I think we have to have a, a serious conversation about that. On the question of who will take place of the United States and the UK, the answer is no one. And that's why, as they say at NASA, we have a problem, Houston. <laughs> Because a world in which countries are defecting and nobody's, nobody's there uh, to, to kind of provide public goods is a, is a very dangerous world. Now, I'm not saying that the UK and the US have already handed in their resignation papers. I'm saying that it's possible and that we should do everything that we can to make sure that those resignation papers are torn up. Finally, on Putin-Trump, I don't have a problem with the uh, effort to work more closely uh, with Russia, and I think that Syria is a place where that should happen, and that's because the military balance has changed, Aleppo has fallen, a combination of Syria, Iran, Hezbollah, Turkey, Russia, makes it virtually impossible to dismantle the existing Syrian regime and get uh, Assad out. That's a reality. And so as a consequence, I think the US should probably hold its nose and try to find some sort of deal with Russia and Turkey that would end the conflict in Syria. And I would, I would try to work with Russia to do that. On a broader rapprochement with Russia, that's fine as long as he gets the hell out of Ukraine, stops messing around in uh, our electoral processes, stops hacking people's email, and starts behaving like a member of the international community. Okay, another round of questions. How about um, this gentleman right up here in front of the bathroom last time? So, we'll start there. Got a hand down here, this gentleman with a red tie back here. Right. And then we'll go over to women and I'll come around. Go ahead. Okay. Hi, uh, I'm from Singapore. Yeah, so um, recently there's this, been this movement away from Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, so I'd just like to ask, um, do you think it's a one step back because you say uh, the post allies of uh, the U.S. you know should continue with engagement, yeah, with the U.S. So do you think it's one step back because um, it's the leader of the free world, the U.S. So uh, would there be implications as to the security of, say, Taiwan, the Japanese region, and even Southeast Asia? And recently, there has been um, the rise of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that is um, from China. So do you think this will be a replacement of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and which will allow China to have a stronger foothold in the East, especially vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the South China Sea? Yeah. Back here. I'm from the University of Bali, the National Asian Security Program. It seems to me that you're very optimistic that uh, I'm not going to be completely Note that uh, things might not last with uh, Donald Trump, 
Okay, next slide question. All right. On uh, canceling uh, TPP, uh, you know, I uh, am of, of two minds about it in the sense that I think it was a mistake, a, a geopolitical mistake in the sense that TPP was the, the most significant demonstration of the pivot to Asia. And it would have put the United States uh, at the center of a multilateral framework in the region. And to cancel it and to pull out is essentially to cede ground to China on a silver platter uh, and let them take the lead in organizing that multilateral order. Uh, and I would assume, and you will know better than I do, that it's, it is left countries, especially smaller countries in Southeast Asia like Singapore, Malaysia, uncertain about uh, where to put your marbles uh, and who in the end of the day you should put your bets on. And I think it would, it would have been um, preferable for the U.S. to give a clear signal of its, of its engagement in the region. You know, the, 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 the downside of it, or the, the reservation has to do with whether it was right to start down that road given the opposition to it in American politics. And it's important to remember that it wasn't just Trump who opposed it, but so did Hillary Clinton. And that, that speaks to the, the degree to which this constituency that elected Trump has political traction. Because if the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate both ran on an anti-free trade platform, it tells you that something is afoot. And that's why I think we have to have a conversation about jobs and, uh, and trade. On um, how, how to engage Trump, uh, fake news, you know, I, I, I think that we don't have much choice but to stick to our guns and to speak truth and to try not to let us get knocked off by his efforts to grab hold of the news cycle. And it's very hard to do, but it would be good if the media sometimes just ignored him. I know it's hard to do with the President of the United States, but what happens is he pops off with something that comes out of left field, and then everybody starts chasing it, rather than focusing on the underlying policy issues that we should be focusing on. And that may be why he does it. I mean, part of it is probably his personality, where he just doesn't seem to be able to sit still after he wakes up in the morning. <laughs> and part of it may be uh, that there is a kind of deliberate effort to dominate and uh, the news cycle and disrupt by just by saying wacky, unsubstantiated things. Uh, while I'm on that subject, I'll comment on the, uh, the presidential process. 
you know, we could, we could have a debate about the electoral college and, and does it make sense to have someone win the popular vote but not be elected president? I don't know. Uh, Peter knows much more about that stuff than I do. I think changing the system would be very difficult. Uh, and also there is some rationale to it in as much as it was erected as a way of trying to give states uh, power at a time when we were trying to cobble together a constitution that the states themselves would ratify. You could say that it's an anachronism, but that's the way that the federal system works in the United States. Um, you know, it is, it is disconcerting to me that we have someone who doesn't know much about what he's doing. Uh, and when it comes to, I mean, he's, he clearly is, a, is a, a businessman who has a lot of experience, but he doesn't know much about national security. He doesn't know much about health care reform. He doesn't know much about a lot of what he is now, he's now responsible for. Uh, and so far, he hasn't paid a lot of attention to the people who do know a lot about it. Instead, he's listening to Bannon and Miller and a few people that are part of his inner circle, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know what goes on in the White House, but it sure as hell doesn't look like he's spending a lot of time with Tillerson and Mattis and McMaster and Pence, all of whom are serious people with, with distinguished records. So I hope that, that he starts giving them more access and more time. On the uh, universal basic income, I think that's, that should be in the hopper. Or another way to get at the same thing would be to seriously raise the minimum wage. I think, what is minimum wage down? $8 an hour in the United States? $7.50? $7.25. $7.25. <laughs> Yeah. So let's pick that up. I mean, Clinton did. Yeah. So if it were some somewhere, let's say in the ten to fifteen range, that would make a huge difference. That would mean that somebody who isn't getting by at seven twenty-five would double his or her salary, and that may mean that uh, that, that you know you could make it on one one job and. and and meet your family obligations. You're not going to become a billionaire at $50 an hour, but you might be able to, to you know, sustain what you, what you need to, to be reasonably happy. So that should definitely be in the mix as we discuss how to make sure that the average American, the average Brit, the average Italian is earning a decent living wage. Finally, on um, the question about the order, uh, yeah, I mean, I obviously was oversimplifying, and part of Pax Americana and part of Pax Britannica, uh, pieces of, of both systems that contained morally reprehensible practices, including racism, uh, imperialism, colonialism, uh, and stuff that we, that we no longer subscribe to. And one of the big differences in the move from Pax Britannica to Pax Americana was the opposition of the United States toward imperialism. So I, I think it's fair to say that those the systems are of a piece. They are part of a similar historical process.
process in which we have made improvements over time. But I didn't mean to suggest that this international system with this set of international rules is the be-all, end-all. We can certainly do better on questions of income inequality, on questions of inclusion, whether it's racial, or economic, or ethnic, but that we need a rules-based system. Then let's talk about the rules. But if we no longer live in a rules-based system, it's hello 1930s. You know, just on that on that last point, maybe just a more general question about <clears throat> the absence of a public goods provider. And really, if, you know, the way that you frame things in the talk, you know, I agree with this that there's a kind of supply and demand problem. There's a lot of demand for public goods, and there's a capacity problem. And, you know, the scenario that you sketch out is if you don't have a public goods provider, you're likely, or there's a good chance that you end up with kind of 1930s story, kind of all the Kindleberger, you know, kind of chaos and disorder. I guess the question is, like, just structurally, you know, is can you imagine alternatives that, um, that I know that you get a kind of fragmentation and a regionalization and one possibility or or maybe some kind of, you alluded to this a little bit when you talked about Britain focusing more on, on defense and maybe providing that to Europe or Europe focuses more on the economic side and, and a kind of like a separation of functions or something. You know, I'm just wondering a little bit about kind of Alternative structural arrangements and Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is sort of there's where we were under Obama, which was under provision of public goods, but the core was sort of intact, and problems that emerged out there were going to be left unresolved. There were going to be, we're going to do strategies of containment, which was what the approach to Syria. Until ISIL sort of reared its head. Um, now we, we face a situation in which you have under provision of public goods and the court itself is eroding. In which case you're more likely to get some kind of uh, unplanned, unmediated breakdown in the system. I think if you're if the core is intact but there's an under provision of goods you might be able to find your way to what you're talking about, a regionalization of governance, a division of responsibility in the international system. But that can't come in a haphazard way. That would kind of have to happen in a deliberate way. And, and so I, what I, I think we're, see, we're seeing now is a switch from in the Obama era where there was a sense of let's try to make this happen with Malice of forethought with you know, plan versus where we seem to be going now, right. which is things are just going to deteriorate. We don't want to end on that happy note, and so we'll take two more questions. How about the gentleman right next to you, right there? We'll start there. And 
And that's because Trump wants to kill bad guys. He wants to get rid of ISIL more quickly than planned under Obama. And one of the ways to do that at low cost to American lives is to fly drones and fire missiles. Uh, and we've already seen the pace pick up again and in Syria. Uh, and so I think that, that uh, it's going to continue heading in that, in that direction. I, I doubt that that Trump will, will cross the Rubicon and put significant numbers of American forces on the ground. Uh, I think there'll be more forces there. There'll be special forces. They'll be calling the airstrikes. They'll be helping with artillery. But I don't think that he has the stomach for sending 10,000 Americans into Raqqa uh, because. In the end of the day, he, he wants to do the same thing that Obama wants to do, which is to get out. Uh, that, that is the, the general direction of American policy when it comes to wars of, of, uh, of this sort in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and I think he, to the degree he has views, he's more of a, a meat and potatoes kind of guy. He wants to focus on the big, on great power politics and not get uh, sucked into a very complicated ethnic and religious conflict in the Middle East. On um, American empire globalization, the end of the British era, you know, the bottom line is that, that um, globalization is here to stay. Uh, it, it's, 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 too, it's too advanced to dismantle, and that's part of the reason that I feel that what Trump should be doing is not trying to stop it, but to shape it and to find ways of using policy as a as a tool to address the, the problems of deindustrialization, to fight in, inequality within countries and, and among countries, because it's you know we, we, we just can't you can't undo it. Um, but that's all the more reason that. We should be concerned about a, a rules-based system. Because for the first time in history, we will be living in a globalized world without a captain. Right? We've been in eras of history before where there was no minder. So if you go back to 1700, for example, it was a very multipolar world. It was a, the Holy Roman Empire, the Mughal Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Qing Dynasty, and the Tokugawa Shogunate. All you know, major players. But the difference between that era of multipolarity and the era of multipolarity that we're heading into is that back in 1700, those spheres didn't interfere or intersect with each other, with some exception. They were self-contained. We're not self-contained. We are smushed together big time. And in a world in which what happens in Beijing affects Moscow, affects Brussels, affects London, affects Washington, affects Brasilia, affects Lagos, uh, in a matter of seconds, that's a world that we need to be able to, to have some kind of system to manage. Uh, and that's why I, I'm very... Concerned about uh, a world in which 
not only there's no captain, but to the degree there is a captain, the captain wants to tear down the system. So let's work to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, we can yeah. do this more often. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've reached the bewitching hour. Um, Carolyn, thanks for just a, a fantastic talk and, and a great Q&A for you. Please join me in thanking you.